This week on The Fulbright Project. The archives. We preserved what we could. You know, that really is a nice collection. Must have taken you a long time to hunt down all that history. I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. You can't do that. But it has to be done. And someone who's trained to handle antique documents is gonna do it. The path of light is laid the sacred test. Would you write this down as I dictate? Sorry, Professor, no time. You removed the document from the Vatican archives? She did. Welcome to the Fulbright Project. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about archives. Yes, those weird places that store things that historians look at. Today, we've got Rebecca. Hi, I'm Rebecca McMillan. PhD candidate here at the University of Arkansas, and I focus on the history of poverty and the formation of the welfare state. Nice to have you, Rebecca, and we have Mike. Hey, Alex, thanks. I'm Michael Shane Powers. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Arkansas also, and I look at the late 19th century South and Latin America. I'm your host, Alex Marino, PhD candidate here at the University of Arkansas as well, and I study the Cold War in Africa. So guys, today we're talking about archives. For historians, this is kind of perhaps the most important part of our work, other than communicating this work with a wide audience. This is where we go to find materials to create new history. So what the heck are archives, uh, and what do we find there? An archive functions as like a repository for documents and primary sources from the past. So it can be anything from correspondence, letters, journals, uh, legislative documents. You know, it can be, as I study for different charity organizations, the interworkings of these charity programs, um, people, you know, case records, things like this. So it's really anything that individuals or organizations or governments donate or give to this repository for people to then go and visit. Yeah, Rebecca, I think the key there is that it's really anything. With archives first started, oftentimes they were a repository for what we call now kind of big man theory of history or the top-down political approach. So archives were useful for nation states and institutions, uh, but also as a way of collecting the records of the big power players, your Washingtons and your Kings. Archives were often a place for uh, nations to collect materials. But you also have a lot of stuff that just individuals and families kept. You know, you come across boxes and boxes of old family photos, of business ledgers that at the time someone just kind of stored away and didn't think they were very important. Um, But that's really the kind of the gold for a historian to find uh, documentary proof for things we know are going on, Uh, receipts, um, travel records. Uh, One of the most fascinating things you can come across is correspondence between people. Uh, No matter when we're looking at American history, we can find letters between uh, not just prominent Americans and uh, and other um, famous individuals or members of government, but you just have letters between mothers and sons, best friends, lovers. Um, And this makes some of the the best stuff uh, in what we do. Yeah, I think that uh, absolutely, because the thing about archives nowadays is it doesn't have to be that top-down approach. Uh, Some of the richest material for cultural historians 
and social historians still is found in an archive. So uh, whether you're doing political history or very uh, much more social and cultural, archives are the place to go. So uh, are these just playgrounds for historians? I mean, who uses these archives? Who works there? What, what? I think that archives are overwhelmingly used by academics and scholars, historians or political scientists, sociologists, anyone who is trying to kind of glean from the past different um, events or individuals, things like this. But they're also open to anyone, right? Uh, you don't have to have or, you know, uh, be trying to pursue a PhD or have a PhD to go to one of these archives. They're really open for anyone. In fact, all of the archives I've been to, I have happened to see individuals there who were just doing some family research or are interested in a particular topic. So they're not all academics. They they can't overwhelmingly. I think that's the the their primary users, but they're really open to anybody. Yeah, I think I remember for an anecdote in a Dan Brown novel uh, that he's denied access to the Vatican archives. And sometimes we tend to think that oh, these archives must be exclusionary. You've got to jump through all these hoops. But in reality, you fill out a few forms, maybe get an ID card, and most reading rooms of an archive are stocked full of genealogists and anybody looking to do from family history to uh, side projects all the way up to any rank and file academic from the grad student to the tenure track professor. Well, and uh, uh, I know Nicholas Cage found a map uh, in the right. National Archive and That's National right. Treasure, so uh, you should go in. No, you I'm should still hoping not to find one of those to in, see. in an archive. So to bounce off of that, I think an important point, too, is that Archives are all around the average American, whether they recognize them or not. Oftentimes, uh, cities and counties will have a, a county historical society. And it might be two rooms in the bottom of the courthouse, but they've got some type of small archive. So they really range from, as we were mentioning earlier, the largest national archives like the Library of Congress or the National Archives uh, in College Park, Maryland, to universities. All universities generally have archives, multiple of them, and then down to the private archives even as well. Yeah, even your local um, like county history museum is probably going to have, they're going to have primary sources, they're going to have records, and those are going to be available to, to, for you to look at if you're interested in something like that. And I mean, nearly every university has, they might call it special collections, they might call it manuscripts division. Uh, all of those are the art. Yeah, like don't be put off if you see library. <laughs> um, that sometimes these phrases can be used interchangeably, but it's it's just housing these documents. I mean, yes, there's going to be books there. Yes, you, you can operate like a normal library as well, but they also have um, this archival material. Yeah, so I mean, here at the University of Arkansas, we have um, some you might some collections you might guess that we might have. Uh, we have the papers of most prominent Arkansan politicians. We have the J. William Fulbright papers. We also have something you might not imagine. We have the Fulbright program papers. Everyone who's ever served in the Fulbright program and foreign exchange related to that, every document created by those programs, every communication between Washington, D.C. and uh, uh, the participants in the field, all that is stored here. We also have the papers of Billy James Hargis, uh, an avowed a staunch anti-communist, white supremacist, some really interesting stuff to look at, not really any connection to the university, just a guy with a lot of crazy stuff that his family decided to donate boxes to the school. And so there's always random stuff that you might not expect uh, in these things. 
Um, so I, as I understand it, we all spent some time in Washington, D.C. this summer uh, doing work in archives. I was wondering if we just kind of go around the table and uh, talk about uh, where we worked at in D.C. and what kind of stuff we found. Uh, Mike, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah, so I had the privilege of, of getting a Smithsonian Fellowship, a Baird Society Resident Scholar Fellowship, and so I worked uh, within the uh, National Museum of American History. So it's right there off of the National Mall, and the Smithsonian is the largest museum organization in the world. They have hundreds of libraries and museums within the United States, even some overseas. Panama, because of the canal, has a uh, still a very active Smithsonian presence. And so while, if you're like myself, you went to D.C. as a fifth grader and went to all, the, all these museums, you wouldn't think that the Smithsonian has so much behind the scenes, perhaps, in those artifacts, but often tucked within some corners will be a uh, library or an archive. So yeah, I was at the Dibner Library for the History of Science and Technology. And I was at the Library of Congress. Uh, I went to their general reading room, which is pretty much open to any um, individual who'd like to go in and, and do generic research, and then at their rare book uh, library as well. Uh, a member of Congress is the only uh, person who can check out a book at the Library of Congress. So you can look at them. You just can't leave with them. Um, only a, a member of Congress can do so. So while it is constructed as institution for the for Congress, um, it has kind of become the national library, if you want to say, this national institution. Yeah, we'll see, too, Rebecca, about the Library of Congress, of course, perhaps most famously amongst the numerous buildings in Washington, D.C. that was burned down when the British uh, invaded the Chesapeake in the War of 1812, and Thomas Jefferson donated the vast amount of his personal library at the time to rebuild uh, the Library of Congress. But Alex, if I'm not mistaken, don't they have a copy of every published book published in the United States? I know they have a goal to do that. I I can't speak from personal... They have... um... Is it like something like publishers rights or something where any book published in the United States they have a copy of they get a copy of it so it's something so anyway their their repository is massive and in fact I think I spoke with somebody who says they have everything every books every books published at the published in the United States except for like Harlequin romance <laughs> like that was the one exception so I was like okay they also allegedly have every tweet in existence yes. Uh, so it'll be interesting for all those future historians. I tell that to my that. students all the time. I said, your tweets are being archived. What we consider ephemera today will be the groundwork of dissertation and books to come. That's right. Uh, and uh, this summer, I, I did some work at the Library of Congress, uh, but also at the National Archives and Records Administration, or NARA II facility, which actually isn't in Washington, D.C., It's in College Park, Maryland. This is designed for researchers to look into official documents of the United States government. So the actual National Archives in D.C. hold things like uh, official copies of the U.N. Treaty, you know, where the United States government keeps their paper documents. Um, The National Archives, too, in Maryland has a lot of great stuff. And I think, Michael, you've also been there, so we can talk a little bit about it. I specifically look at State Department files, um, and so most of what I was looking at were the, the telegrams and airgrams 
uh, in the 40s and 50s, 60s, if you really wanted to send a message quick, uh, you would have to put the letter on a plane and fly it over the Atlantic if you wanted a 48-hour turnaround. And so there are copies of these uh, stored from every single diplomatic post in the world, and that's the kind of stuff uh, that I've been working with. And certainly at the National Archives, not only do they have diplomatic files, they also have military files. And this is where you see a lot of people coming in to do genealogical projects. People want to see uh, their grandpa's World War II uh, military records, trying to figure out where he served and learn more about that. One thing I thought was great uh, institutionally by the National Archives is they have a shuttle service from downtown D.C., right outside where uh, the Declaration of Independence is and uh, within National Archives 1. But the shuttle service runs every hour um, back and forth between D.C. and College Park, Maryland. That was very nice to use. Now, it'd be great if you could do a whole dissertation, write a whole book doing research in just one, one city. And some people can't. Where else have you guys done research in the world in archives? So my research uh, focuses on Germany, Great Britain, and the United States. So I have actually gone to archives in all three of those different countries, creating lots of different archive experiences. So went to a some local archive, uh, local archives, excuse me, in Germany, um, and even some federal archives there. Then went to Britain and did a combination of uh, both private and public archives. And then here in the United States, of course, the Library of Congress, as I mentioned, and then archives at uh, two different universities, Columbia University and the University of Minnesota. Yeah, so the archives I've had the privilege to go to as well, uh, out in California, University of California, Berkeley, the Bancroft uh, Library there, uh, and then several around uh, South Louisiana, which is the primary focus of my dissertation. So uh, the Louisiana uh, State Archives, or in other words, the State Archives of Louisiana in Baton Rouge, and then also LSU's special collections, as well as a really great uh, private archive in New Orleans called the Historic New Orleans Collection right there in the French Quarter. Uh, really beautiful uh, stuff. I'm a little earlier on in my work, so I won't, I won't list off the places I might go to. But this year, I've been to the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California, the JFK Library in Boston, National Archives, Library of Congress in D.C., uh, and I'm also going to the Lyndon Johnson Library in a week uh, in Austin, Texas, and later the Gerald Ford Library up in Michigan. So these presidential libraries have all the records for an entire presidency. They catalog everything and then just gets thrown in boxes and squirreled away. And so I'm very familiar with those. But as Mike has talked about recently, it's very much this top-down history. We're going to look at how the White House can really change the world. Uh, and sometimes uh, those sources can lead you astray. Um, and they're not nearly as um, important as some other ones. If you have any questions about going to the archives... Tweet us at at FBrightProject, and uh, we'll get back to you with advice from this podcast and just kind of the wealth of experience that we have. Speaking of, how did you guys choose these archives? I mean, obviously, if you have a three-country focus on your dissertation, you know you need archives from each. Or if you're working on Louisiana history, you need to go to Louisiana. Um, but how did you pick the individual archives? I think one, uh, to bounce off of that, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from a distinguished Civil War professor at Virginia Tech, James Robertson. 
And he said, oftentimes graduate students want to be either original or nothing. And he said, too often they accomplish both. Uh, so one of the best ways to find what archive to do is really mine secondary sources for the footnotes and often the bibliographic essay at the end. So I would say, I think nine out of ten archives I've been to, the vast majority, I've just written down from seeing them mentioned in secondary sources, other historians' work that has been formative to my own. Now, real quick, Mike, uh, we all know what secondary sources, we use these labels all the time. What is a secondary source? Yeah, so if we talk about an archive, a primary source being uh, material that is contemporary to the time, diaries, newspapers, census records, those are what you're finding in an archive. A secondary source is a often a compilation or a weaving together of various primary sources. So that's the books you're buying at Barnes & Noble or off of Amazon. So you're talking about like Blood on the Water by Heather Ann Thompson, which yeah. you can hear a review of on the Fulbright Project podcast. Yeah, and the secondary literature, I mean, that's the obvious place to, to start. And then the second obvious place, I guess, for my own research is that I'm studying a particular welfare system that started in a specific town in Germany. And so going to that city's archives that they have there or that, and then I went from there to their regional archives. So geographically speaking, I'm obviously using that as kind of my trail. And that those are both archives that I had not seen in secondary literature. So I had to kind of put those together myself to figure out, okay, well, this is obviously talking about this location. They're going to hold papers about this particular system. And so it leads me in that. Another place to look is, um, like I knew I needed to go to Great Britain and not initially, I'm, I'm a German historian by training. So being a little bit unfamiliar with British archives, I went to the, the, the National Archives website there in, uh, for Great Britain, and their website is phenomenal. We can talk more about websites later, but they um, they help give you when you do a search. You just put in search terms. They actually tell you what archives you need to go to, or what holds what archives hold which um, items in Britain. So just you know, being on top of that, using that as a resource to help you uh, decide which ones you need to go to can be very helpful. Yeah. So I think often archives, as Rebecca you mentioned, a good place to look is. Geographically, if you're doing a, a history of a state or a locality, uh, they will most of the time have an archive there about that. If you're looking at an individual or individuals, they often will have an archive perhaps to their papers. And then third, oftentimes there'll be archives dedicated to certain topics. So uh, archive on whatever the topic might be, military history to uh, social welfare or something. So I found that Google is a great tool to find archives, and I'll give you an example. So I study rebels in Africa that the U.S. government and the Soviet Union backed, hoping to kind of influence this revolution in Angola, a former Portuguese colony. And it's very difficult when you are studying the CIA or covert action to find declassified sources. And so you're reading through this stuff, and you're looking through, and it's kind of difficult to find unbiased reporting on a situation, and the name of a missionary will show up in a report. And I'll say to myself when I'm at the archive, you know what, I'm just going to see if that guy has his paper stored somewhere in an archive. And so I just turn to Google, and I just put in the name of the, the missionary and papers. And lo and behold, boom, they're in New Jersey. I just need to go over there and take a look. Uh, or on this last trip, I was at uh, Library of Congress because I figured out that 
Uh, former New York Governor Avril Harriman was very involved in Africa policy, and so I was curious. I just looked up at Avril Harriman papers. There they are at Library of Congress, and when I went there, I was able to find pictures of him with African leaders, him uh, giving correspondence about how to support rebels, how to defeat rebels in Africa, and it was all there, all because Google helped. But there are other things online that we can use, um, not just to find archives, but to figure out what we need in them, right? Uh, those are the finding aids. I was wondering if you guys could just tell uh, our audience, again, that are not necessarily historians, what a finding aid is and how you use one. Yeah, so if you know that an archive has a particular collection, so it might be a collection of, like for example, what I'm studying of this particular charity organization, they will then hopefully have a finding aid that then goes into more detail. One, about how the collection is organized, um, and then from that organization, the specific documents or files that they may contain from that organization. So it kind of helps to give you, shows you their organizational method, but also helps you figure out what exactly it is that you want to look at, um, what exactly it is that you are trying to investigate there. Because, you know, a collection might have 700 boxes in it. And, you know, you're there for a week. You don't have time to look at 700 boxes. You don't need to look at 700 boxes of material. So the finding aid is going to pinpoint you in the direction of saying this is the these are the set of boxes or this is the group of boxes you want to look at and these are the folders that are inside those boxes and so it's it kind of just helps to give you more and more description of those items and yet these finding aids as you mentioned also are have a great resource of the tags on them so let's say if you're looking at uh, new orleans party politics in the 1880s as i do on the, one of the tabs on the left, they might have some of the key words that this is intersecting with. And so that might be a good access area to mine for areas that might jump off that you didn't see before. And uh, it's important to note that these finding aids uh, are not uniform in any way. Uh, sometimes the finding aid will be a giant PDF, and that's great because you can just kind of search through it, easily scroll through. Other times, they're from fairly old web pages. You have to follow links, and if you don't know the right way to go through it, you'll miss something. And other times, these finding aids only exist in hard copy at the archive. Unfortunately, you know, that might seem like a hindrance, but one of the most important things you need to do when you're planning research is to contact the archives um, themselves. And often, not only will a, a archivist or librarian crack open that that hard copy finding aid for you, but sometimes they have very powerful database tools and they can run searches that we can't from home or from our laptops. Um, and so these are great tools, but there are ways you can, you can learn to use them uh, even better. So we've mentioned Google, we've mentioned uh, having your laptop out and talking about these finding aids. What kind of technology do we use as professional historians to take these documents and then record them, store them, and then eventually use them to tell our own stories? I think the most uh, efficient and very easy way to do so is take some type of uh, camera with you. So uh, oftentimes I will just take uh, my iPhone that nowadays has enough memory that I know I can take hundreds of pictures and will not run into space issues. Uh, and that's really the key is finding this balance between what's efficient and easy because you want to maximize your time, but also what do you know you have a way to keep it charged and also a way to store 
all of that space. So uh, a camera uh, is a really good way to do that. And there are a lot of um, apps now that you can download to put on your iPhone or iPad. I use an iPad for mine for taking pictures of, uh, of the documents I'm looking at in the archive. I use a particular app called Scanner Pro. Um, I can't recommend it enough. I'm sure there are, though, a whole host of others that are very similar. Uh, What this particular app does is that it captures the image, and rather than saving it as a picture, it it turns that document into a PDF file. And so that is is much easier for me to search, for me to go back and read later on. You can zoom in and zoom out, and it helps to kind of um, justify or clarify document to some degree um, once it has been captured. So again, if you're looking at a lot of the stuff I'm looking at is that carbon copy paper. So it's real, real thin and it kind of basically turns it into a sheet of paper, like a PDF file. And so they're much more easier to manage when you're going back and, and looking at them. So having some type of app that does that, some type of scanner app, I think is is a definite must. Scanner Pro also will find the border very easily for a document and convert it to a nice, clean, crisp black and white. Uh, which is what you want for looking at a text. So none of us are paid, uh, yeah. <laughs> paid by the company that makes Scanner Pro, but uh, I'll we just should echo. Be. We use it enough. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just echo uh, the praises for it. One of the coolest things it does is it has OCR technology, and so it actually, when it has a good picture, it reads the words and turns it into a searchable text document, which is invaluable when you go back to actually writing uh, writing your own history. Um, Google uh, does Alex, this I don't as well. even think I knew that Scanner Pro had the capability to do that, so I just learned a great thing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, hey, we're learning new things Helping all the time. Helping each other out all the time. Uh, if you guys have uh, your own tips, your own apps that you use that you like better, and we're just using Scanner Pro because that's what we know, tweet at us. Uh, we would love to put together a list of things that you guys like and you guys use, and we'll uh, compile that list. We'll put it out there on uh, social media. And I think that segues well, too, into making sure you're doing your homework ahead of time to see what are the rules of the archive, because each archive is so different. Sometimes you'll run into one that, that will charge you to use the camera unlimited or charge you for them to take the pictures for you. So I know we've all had that experience, too. Yeah, I think you just have to be prepared in knowing what what that archive, what their policy is. Some of them will not even allow you to have a picture-taking device in the room with you. That's how much they don't trust you. At least that's my experience. <laughs> and then um, you have some that are just like, they want you to. Um, in fact, I just the one archive I was at recently, the archivist told me, please bring your own. I cannot, I'm so backed up in my own scanning log that it would be really helpful if you just would do your own so you'll get everything from in between but read their policy it should be on their website and uh, that way you can prepare ahead of time something i've learned the hard way too the first archive or so i visited was being a bit lackadaisical on making sure that my uh, citations were correct for each photo so whatever that organization process is uh, make sure you got that because it's nothing more frustrating than finding good things and then not knowing exactly where you found it. Yeah, because that's uh, it's kind of um, where our credibility comes from as historians and the credibility of our books, right? That if you wanted to, you could go look at a footnote, figure out where in the world that archive is, travel there, open that same box, and there would be that piece of evidence, right? And yeah, to keep it as uh, 
accurate as possible, a lot of these archives will have different collections. And so you want to be more specific than labeling your folder National Archives because it might veer from a certain subset of the National Archives that requires its own you know, special collections type of footnoting and bibliographic entry than to something different. And sometimes those rules are made to protect you. Uh, a lot of a lot of what I deal with are, are documents that were classified when they were created, and so they have written all over them, secret, classified, uh, you know, these different security levels. And you hear all the time about uh, federal contractors that go to jail because they inadvertently, or sometimes, you know, WikiLeaks, they do steal classified documents. And, and you know, Chelsea Manning went to jail for transporting classified documents. And so archives will hand you a little slip of paper. You have to make sure that little slip is in every picture, and it'll say declassified by this order, property of, you know, Richard Nixon Library. So if, if you know, not often do I get stopped uh, and asked to show the pictures on my phone uh, at an airport. But if they did, you know, that would prevent me from having broken any laws pertaining to classification rules, etc. The other thing that I um, experience a lot is, and I deal with some, you know, older documents in that... If it's from an, uh, a document that is binded, uh, they'll usually have you place it on a book rest. They want to be very careful about that binding because when it's become so old and so brittle, the binding can just come apart. And so they'll be very specific about giving you these foam blocks to place it on and to make sure that you're handling them with the proper care. And so all the archives are going to be different on how they establish these rules, but understanding that um, and they can become confusing, especially by the point when you've gone to as many different archives as I have, remembering like how you know what their rule is there. But just to know that it's for a good purpose, like they're trying to preserve these documents as best as they can, so that some other scholar or you know um, can come in and look at them, or that they're available to someone else. So, one of the neatest experiences for me when I get really nerdy and love it, uh, uh, doing what I do and feel passionate about it, is digging into a folder. or or pulling out some type of, of bound manuscript and having some uh, just dust or dirt or grime come out. And you kind of think that, wow, this must be some uh, 19th century uh, uh, grime that's coming off and getting on my fingers. I mean, that sounds cheesy as can be, but it's pretty neat. So do these, uh, in your experience, do these archives charge for you to go and do research there? I would say all non-American archives that I have visited, so the three in Britain and the three in Germany that I've visited, have all charged to either visit or to take pictures. So in Germany, if you are not a doctoral student um, or a student of some form who is visiting their their archives, they charge you one euro for every um, scan. You're not even allowed to take your own pictures, so they have to scan them for you. So one euro per scan. However, being a grad student, you get a grand discount of 50% off, so you pay 50 euro cents (laughs) for uh, for every scan. Um, And then in Britain, what was most common was paying a flat fee. So at the... um, I think it was at Lambeth Palace Library, the uh, the Church of England's archives. Uh, I paid five pounds per day, so it's usually their flat fee, or they charge you per per scan or per picture. I plan on going to Europe, but I, in the United States, I have never had to pay for access to the archives. Yeah, never paid for access to get in there, but I've definitely had to pay, as Rebecca mentioned, of course, to take photos or some type of scanning process. It can become if you're not if you don't anticipate this if you haven't read up you know go into their website and and reading through their policies if you don't expect this it's going to be 
a a massive chunk of your of your funds that you that you have so it's best to prepare and it's also best to have a plan of action before going in in terms of saying am I going to just try and save money and transcribe documents or just take notes of documents or do I need to get a actual physical copy of these so they scan them and so you know you do what you can you got to find some common some, some kind of common ground to be able to to decide how what works best for what your research is so I'm a little bit of a foodie, uh, and so when I'm planning these trips, I'm always thinking about uh, where I'm going to eat, either for lunch or for dinner. Like I know at, in Yorba Linda at the Nixon Library, you've got so much good food within walking distance or a short drive. It's, a, it's, a hard, <laughs> it's hard to pick, but then the National Archives, too, in College Park, Maryland, you have a cafeteria that has a lot of options, but after a while... You know, cafeteria food gets a little old and there's nothing really close to walk by. Do you guys have any kind of best eats uh, from your studies or horror stories related to food? So I'm a major cheapskate (laughs) and I save as much money as possible, primarily because of the fact that my very first archive experience, I was having to pay 50 euro cents for every scan. So I was like, I'd rather my money go to documents and rather than food. So I usually bring my lunch to the archive. So you you can't obviously can't bring it into the archive itself, but they'll have a locker. So my backpack, I'll bring a sandwich and some chips or something and my my water, my bottle of water. And so I don't try, I try not to buy food when uh, out to eat or, you know, I try to make it a kind of like a work day as I would at my office. I'd bring my my lunch to my office, so I'd bring it to the archive as well. So Rebecca eats ramen for dinner and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch. Yes. <laughs> I normally take my lunch as well to kind of maximize on time. And uh, although being a foodie myself too, Alex, I normally reserve that for I would treat myself dinner. usually. So like I was in Germany for a month. And I would treat myself one or two nights a week. Uh, my favorite thing in Germany is a doner kebab. <laughs> and so if I could find, uh, they're usually pretty cheap and they're pretty big. So you could fill up on, on one doner kebab. Um, so I would I would treat myself to that. And I would use Google uh, suggestions, you know, Google Maps suggestions of eating places around there. So if I found something cheap that looked good, that usually won out at the end. Yeah, Google and Yelp are great for that. That's right. I think the best... I mean, so what I normally do is I, I, I try to save as much money as possible on dinners, cooking, where I'm staying, and then, you know, have some great meals. And so I think in Boston at the Kennedy Library, studying Portuguese Africa, whenever I can get good Portuguese food, I go for it. Uh, and Boston is one of those towns with a large Portuguese-American community, and I had some of the best uh, bacalhau I've ever had. I'm sure I, once I go to Portugal, I won't uh, hold a candle to it, but uh, it's probably the best thing I've eaten on a trip. So we're starting to talk about cost, saving money, you know, packing food, uh, buying food. How do, generally, how do historians pay for this kind of work? And how have you guys done it in the past? Well, ideally, you will get somebody else to pay for it by um, applying for and hopefully winning some grants um, or research travel um, grants or fellowships, that kind of thing, from different archives. Um, so you can find these grants through historical organizations um, and apply for them, or historical societies, or even the archive itself might have grants to, uh, that you can apply for to come to their specific archive. The Social Welfare History Archive at the University of Minnesota have has 
something called the Chambers Fellowship. So you submit your application, basically gives a description of your project, what you need to use there. They usually will require you to fill out a budget. So that actually really helps in my planning process because it gets me to think about how much my lodging will cost, how much I anticipate for food, for travel expenses, and and you you submit that in. And then a committee generally will um, make the decision. So I was fortunate enough to, to get that and they helped pay my trip to Minneapolis. Those itemized budgets that they want really are key also because it's a way for you to demonstrate beyond your narrative in the application that you've done your homework. So throw in there what the per diem rate is, put the exact Delta flight that you might be using, say I'm staying at this hotel which is 0.7 walking, you know, 0.7 miles to the archive, this is how much they're going to charge me to take a picture of each document, and that's a way really to, to separate yourself from the pile rather than saying, I'm going to want $500 to go there. I know here at the University of Arkansas, um, we have tremendous donors who have given a lot of money to the history department. And so I think all three of us uh, have done research funded through the history department at the University of Arkansas, the J. William Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, due to the, the generous gifts of uh, friends of the history department. Normally these type of fundings, think of them as, as building blocks in that I think we've all started getting uh, departmental awards through the history department at the University of Arkansas, then perhaps a college-wide award through the University of Arkansas, then perhaps a university-wide award. And then once you get to that stage, and along the way, of course, apply for those travel assistance through the particular archive you're looking at or apply for some bigger nationwide grants. And what's nice is oftentimes archives, especially if they're major repositories and at universities, they will have a graduate student-only grant. That is a pretty accessible way to get your foot in the door there. But each time you're winning these awards, they build on each other. And if you look through these different archives, uh, funding opportunities, they then can roll into even additional opportunities for you in that while I was in Minnesota, I was able to give a research in progress talk, right? So I got, I got to present on my research while I was there. Um, and I also get to... Um, submit something for their the archives blog that they have right they want to know about my time so this kind of just rolled into more than just an opportunity of getting funding which was absolutely essential but then also other unique academic opportunities and scholarly opportunities as well i think perhaps the single best area to find out about these funding opportunities is hnet a email group message that historians are able to select which fields of a forum they would like to follow. And, uh, I mean, everything under the sun. So I subscribe to the H-South for Southern historians, uh, Gilded Age historians, Louisiana historians, all the like, whatever your niche might be. And as long as you can check your emails regularly, which I fall down on sometimes, they will tell you months in advance what the next deadline is for any type of funding opportunity. And I think one of the largest costs that you have is uh, accommodations or your living, where you're going to stay while you're there. You know, being in Washington, D.C., as we were, you know, I was in New York City for two weeks. These are not cheap places to live. So getting creative on where you're going to stay is very helpful. So I have used, um, in all of my travel, Airbnb. Again, we're not paid by Airbnb to, to promote them, but uh, as a, someone who's used it a lot um, in the last year, I can say that I've had a 
overwhelmingly positive experience. If you can find a space that has, it's a little kitchen of some sort where you can cook some of your meals, that's where you're going to save a lot of money for your for your travel if you are on a very strict budget. Or even if you're not on a strict budget and you just don't want to spend a lot of money, that being able to bring your lunch so you have a place to fix yourself a sandwich and things like that or fix yourself some breakfast. Avoid having to spend 10 bucks at Starbucks or something. That's going to help in the long run just keeping you within a budget and keeping you from spending a lot of unnecessary money. And I found in big cities um, where sometimes even an Airbnb would be very expensive to have access to a kitchen, a lot of times an Airbnb where you just have a private room, you can still get free breakfast where it's like a true bed and breakfast or at least get coffee. That's amazing how much money you can save if coffee is included. And um, what I find is that it's really it's, it's really easy to stay in a room in a house if you have your own private bathroom. And so that's the thing when I'm doing an Airbnb, I'll always try to find a way where I, if I do, if I am sharing a, rest, uh, a restroom, it'll be with another researcher or I'll have it on my own. And that way I'm not ever having to really have my host in my personal space. Um, so if you're weirded out uh, by this idea of just kind of staying with people in the new gig economy, there are ways that you can still, for a pretty affordable way, find uh, housing. And that's really, I mean, this is how it used to work back in the day, right? You'd stay at a boarding house um, where you there'd be a room to let. Well, and universities usually used to really have kind of like a, a, a board of some sort, sort that you could um, utilize for this. And that has become less common and has kind of been replaced with, with Airbnb. And so I think, yeah, I think you make a great point that deciding for yourself what it is that you it's going to it's going to be best for you in terms of being able to use that having your own personal bathroom space or maybe it's the kitchen I've done both where I have stayed in just a room with a family and that was a little bit more difficult for me in that I didn't ever have any really of my own space and so kind of learning from that and finding areas that that do that do fit my budget and what I know I need for because you're working all day right you're not this isn't a vacation Um, I think a lot of times when you go on these research trips people are like oh you're going vacation do I get to work in some fun things absolutely but I'm not on vacation I'm there to work so my days are very long I come home in the evenings I don't really want to do a lot except to just kind of hang out right and just 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 veg so um, sometimes Airbnb can be nice for those those types of things another good tip that I found is view at each archive you go to as an experience to expand your professional network so if you have business cards is a great way an area to pass those out because archivists and librarians they're passionate about what they do just like uh, what historians are. So I've had times where it's a few kind words and chit-chatting with an archivist. Number one, oftentimes right there, they go, oh, well, this intersects with the papers of this institution, and it's immediately profitable. But uh, several times as well, five months down the road, I'll get an email out of the blue from librarian X from Archive Y, and he or she's able to remember what I did and pass along new information. And second, and related to that, especially at university archives, Look up and see who the faculty are at that institution. They, they are often very receptive to meet with young scholars, whoever it might be, uh, to just chit-chat with about your research if, if a faculty member there intersects with your work. So do you guys have any last tips for our, our uh, friends in the profession and some new amateur historians that are inspired by this, <laughs> by this podcast? I think that the elephant in the room, of course, would be to make sure that you back up what you spent this hard-earned time and often money accessing. 
So whatever you're comfortable with, but the, the standard ones are also uh, very efficient. So Google Drive, the iCloud, good old-fashioned external hard drives, something that is temporary like a phone memory or a USB, don't let that get you too complacent because uh, those can be lost and get coffee spilled on them and so forth. My tip would be to have a system of note-taking in place before you get to the archive itself. Figure out whatever works for you, kind of how you think and how you plan to organize your items. Because in your mind, you may think to yourself while you're there, oh, I'll remember this or I'll remember what was there. No, you won't. Because, you know, three archives later, you're somewhere else. You're looking at something completely different and you just don't quite remember. So have a system of note-taking in place. That way it can help you in the future when you're going back and you're in the writing stage or you're going back and you're you're reviewing over what it is you've 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 researched. Um, you're not spending spending hours trying to figure out now what was this document and why was it important and why did I look at it Um, but that you you figured that system out ahead of time so whatever works for you just have it in place ahead of time and I would just say you need to you need to be flexible and you need to be curious Uh, I like to uh, I mean we all have this dream that we're going to go into an archive find this amazing document that changes the world and how we look at history and that's going to change everything we do after that and that's not often the case But to kind of keep a little bit of that uh, guessing game and stand on my toes, I always try to pick something that's kind of a long shot. So I go through these finding aids and I talk to archivists and I find the things that I know I need. And then I also select a couple of stuff that, you know, might be nothing. I just have a hunch and I kind of let myself go down the the rabbit hole a little bit. And, um, you know, maybe it's not the the thing that will make or break a book or journal article, but sometimes it's the most fascinating things that... I look at are are letters from an individual that seemed a little odd or maybe looking at the personal side of some of these politicians. Um, You'll be amazed to see who they were friends with um, or kind of weird stuff they did in their spare time. But uh, I don't know if that helps us as historians, but it adds a little fun to the day. I just want to thank Rebecca and Mike for joining us today and uh, remind you all to follow us on Twitter at fbrightproject.com. And on Facebook, Fulbright Project, tweet at us if you liked this episode, if you have any ideas for future episodes, and if you have any tips or experiences that you want to share about the archives. Thank you, Alex. It's been fun. Thanks so much.